The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. There's a wonderful sequence in Roger Green's 2009 documentary on Derek Mahan, The Poetry Nonsense, when Derek and Hugh Houghton surveyed around parts of London for which Derek had a strong and clearly lasting affection. Their conversation swings back and forth, dropping names from Coleridge to Blake, Behan and Proust and Pound uh, at the drop of a hat. Indeed, the style of headgear adds something all of its own to their learned rambles. A fetching leather number for Hugh and a somewhat floppy artisan West Coast cap or duncher in Belfast ease for Derek. Respect, comfort and intelligent conversation hops off the screen as poet and critic traverse the centuries in the cosmopolitan setting of a bright, if cool, London afternoon. A perfect match, so to speak. It's something, this easeful authority and calm scholarly engagement, which has marked Hugh Houghton's work, crossing literary and cultural uh, and language boundaries and borders with the clear desire to celebrate or celebrate, as I've heard it mentioned, the value of poetry as a form of art. No wonder Mahan treasured Hugh Houghton as one of the finest and most intelligible readers of poetry, his own included. Whether it be his edition of T.S. Eliot's letters, his essential anthology of Second World War poems, his much acclaimed essays, reviews and lectures, Hugh Houghton's priceless understanding of poetry is first and foremost, foremost a defense of the artistic imagination. His comprehensive study, The Poetry of Derek Mahan, set the benchmark for Derek's poetry in life, which would be read for future students and general public alike. So it's only right and fitting that in this keynote lecture, Hugh will offer his views and responses to Lit Mahan, Resistance and the Medium. Hugh Houghton. Hello, everybody. Am I now visible? You are now. I'm visible. I'm audible. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry, for, for a lovely introduction, and Nikki for inviting me and everybody else to this uh, a great uh, event. Uh, to celebrate uh, Derek uh, in Trinity. Um, I'm, I'm a bit heartbroken not to be there with you in person, uh, with, given that such a glittering cast of poets, critics and friends, um, but I'm, I'm having to do this by Zoom. But presence and absence, Derek is absent, but he will be very present. And hopefully you are present to me and I will be present to you in this bizarre form. Um, I'm going to be talking without uh, PowerPoint, 
the, the technical challenges I thought I'd better resist. So I'm speaking more like a Beckett talking head here. Um, think of not I or uh, not you. <laughs> so late Mahan, uh, Nikki asked me particularly to address late Mahan as I'd written uh, a little bit about um, earlier Mahan. After the astonishing harvest embodied in poems 1961 to 2020, it may seem churlish to begin with an early text never collected by Mahan himself. I came across it when looking for something else, and I thought it would probably be unfamiliar even to most Mahan aficionados. It was first published in the Dubliner in 1963 when Derek was still at Trinity, and it begins as follows. None the worse for sudden death, I rose, slipped on a bathrobe over my grave clothes, rubbed my eyes and combed my hair and opened all the windows. Morning already, and the morning air streamed in the ghost sheets of a sun shower. The rinsed moon in the glass could see the night dissolving star by star. A gull came beating inland from the sea, quacking with fear over the lost city, then wheeled away and doubled back, last of his genus, probably, to flap about in his own rack and ruin. Listening, I heard a clock fire off the hour, 9, 10, 11, and ricochet from block to block. It's a, it's a wonderful image of Derek resurrected, none the worse for sudden death, I rose, and I wanted to begin by invoking that today. Washed up, washing up proved in spades that he was none the worse for death, and so does poems uh, 1961 to 2020. Uh, but I couldn't resist that first line. It feels appropriate today where Derek's presence will be felt by all of us and his voice. The poem is a poignant as well as witty early self-portrait of the poet as outsider and survivor, a prefiguration of the washed up speaker of after the Titanic and more recently in washing up. Here he figures momentarily as a kind of Lazarus um, in that throwaway double take segue from none the worse for sudden death I rose to slipped on a bathrobe, completely changing the force of rise. I don't know why he dropped the poem. Girls in their seasons was rescued from the same issue and survived for a while. Perhaps its wit seemed a bit too slick and the rhymes too clickety-click. Nonetheless, it already exhibits some of the poet's buoyant sense of the resilience of his medium and his underlying sense of the world, urban and beyond. We get details of daily life, the bathrobe, the open windows, the clock striking, buses in the street below, mapped against the lost city, comparable to the desperate city of spring in Belfast. And beyond that, the sea, weather effects of sunlight, the lovely ghost sheets of a sun shower, and the sense of a larger cosmos embodied in the rinsed moon in the glass and night dissolving star by star. Mahan remained a stargazer and a celebrator of the night sky to the end. And he was also a lifelong laureate of gulls and morning air. In fact, I was wondering, has any poet since the troubadours written so many obads and dawn poems? 
Similarly, has any poet written so sustainedly about endings and beginnings and the relationship between them? The poem goes on to say, so there they were all ready to begin, holidaymakers, immigrants and children, before adding a mordant Beckettian touch at the end as the poet retires again to his deathbed, feigns death, and decides to just lie there till the next world ended, none the worse for sudden death. Typical of Derek to be imagining another apocalypse, another resurrection. Now, it, it must seem a bit eccentric to devote so much space to a rejected apprentice poem when we have the cornucopia of the, the new poems before us. But it reminds us how soon Mahan became Mahan, the poet of the modern city and modern nature, evident across the mighty span of poems from spring in Belfast to words to the wise. If there is a touch of everyday larking about it, there's also a distinctive metaphysical note or Stevens, um, and a prophetic mastery, however brittle, of the asymmetrically rhymed stanza in which Mahan traveled the world for the next 60 years, deploying it to deal with personal, environmental, and political crises beyond the wit of this ephemeral poem, though the fate of ephemera is one of his greatest subjects. And there is that word rinsed applied to the moon, which immediately brings to mind the rinsed mud and keeping the colors new in the early elegy to McNeese, Carador, as well as the late Mahana washing up, which I want to cut to now. One of many late defiant and ironic self-portraits, it's cast loosely in Swiftian rhymed tetrameters and like, none the worse, begins domestically. You do the gastronomy, I wash up and rinse under a running tap before moving out into a larger frame like that earlier poem. In this case, the poet is literally rinsing, standing at the kitchen sink, watching the soap bubbles blink. From this vantage point, the poem then moves swiftly in several different directions in his signature style. It gives me time to think about our lives here, at the edge, no, at the eye of real existence, wind and sky working together to define the limits of our own domain. That qualifying at the edge, no, at the eye, captures the poet's characteristic vantage point on the move and on the exposed margins of the social order, as well as at the heart of things. Domain is one of Mahan's most cherished words, giving expansive French-style reach to his chosen grounding place in Kinsale, viewed here from the kitchen sink. This is kitchen sink poetry. We speak of the eye of the storm, and Mahan's sense of existence is often stormy. He has a late poem called After the Storm, and another on the Florida Keys after a hurricane. But this idea of the eye of real existence memorably situates the poet's eye and his eye, his seeing eye, in the imagined stormy eye of the world. As it does so, the poem expands its idea of washing up to a global and planetary scale. There's so much washing up to do on this degraded planet now, he says. He then lists oceans and forests, oily strands, invoking our filthy lucrative demands on the resources of this place. 
and soon perhaps of outer space. The cosmic rhyme of this place, meaning the earth and space, opens the door to a cosmic scale. Balmahan's appeal as a poet fascinated by rubbish and rubbish theory to the filthy lucrative gives a startling ecological twist to filthy lucre, adjectively marrying money to environmental pollution. Back at the sink, shifting between domestic and cosmic perspectives, he notes that beyond the window, a bright star watches my performance from afar while staging himself as a relic of pre-digital times, fond of anachronistic rhymes in flight from the new politique, washed up on a deserted beach, grumpy, contrarian, out of reach. In earlier poems, he's characterized himself as a, a recovering Protestant from County Down, the Chiliastic Prig and other things. But the poet here clearly relishes his role as a late grumpy contrarian washed up on his primal scene, the beach. He's washed up in a number of senses, of course, having accidentally wound up in Kinsale, but also being what the OED defines as finished without further prospect of success, ironically, or exhausted, washed out. So many of the late poems are aware of writing against the clock are aware of mortality. The poem frames him and his partner uh, as urban exiles washing up here on this shore, setting them against swifts migrating from Rwanda and golfers helicoptering in to play golf at the old head of Kinsale links when they would have preferred to be in Hawaii, creating links of many kinds before ending with an after-dinner walk along the beach to watch the sea washing up in the estuary. The sea washes up the estuary, but also washes up the estuary, suggesting the larger tidal rhythms of renewal and cleansing, human waste and natural forces. Now, in the earlier panel, uh, there was a wonderful series of talks um, by Sam and Sean and Irina about Mahan as ecological poet. So I'm, I feel a bit wary of trespassing on the same material and there'll be some overlap. But I do think um, one of the things I'm going to be talking about Mahan and resistance, crucial to the late poetry is this sense of resisting the forces that are destroying the natural world. Um, uh, and this eco poetry that he, he evolved in his later life, though it has roots in earlier life, uh, I think is, is first mapped out in Ovid and Thomas, uh, which uh, was discussed, Sean, I think, discussed in, in the first panel, um, which I think of as the primal text of modern eco-poetry. Um, but Mahan was building this kind of late sense of, 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 of the threatened earth, and a need to re-enchant the earth over quite a long time, but it came into its own, as it were, in the late Mahan that I'll be talking about today. In this late poetry, viewing the universe from Kinsale, like Oedipus at Colonus, re-enchantment and resistance, celebration and critique go hand in hand, uh, an embrace played out, as I want to show, in language. Uh, and form. 
My title, um, Mahan, um, The Medium and Resistance, uh, flies on the coattails of a quotation from Roman, Raymond Chandler, which was dear to late Mahan. No art without resistance of the medium. Late Mahan is very much a part of resistance as washing up makes clear. But in a sense, this was always true. As I wrote in the poetry of Derek Mahan, I, I, I never read myself. And, and I was looking up online uh, this, and I found this quotation from Horton. So I thought I could use it kind of legitimately because I, I was finding it from somebody else. But there I wrote, if he started out as a poet in, in resistance to his home place, he went on to become a uniquely compelling poet of other places without abandoning the notion of poetry as a form of resistance. Though in love with the aesthetic and gifted with an ear for intellectual cantabile, there's always an edge of political anger and cultural critique in his work, born of a sense of damage that has become increasingly ecological. And this, as it were, comes out completely out into the open, as it were, in the, in the last period of, of Mahan's long career. But it's in the Parisian resistance days from Harbour Lights, dedicated to the photographer John Menon, many of whose photographs we've all been looking at, um, these enchanting photographs of Derek um, in Conseil and among um, uh, gatherings of poets. Uh, it, it is in resistance days that Mahan first flew the flag of resistance. After cheekily evoking days of resistance un peu soviétique, plain Sartre en Beauvoir, dancing cheek to cheek, he quotes the Chandler, no art without the resistance of the medium. Our own resistance, the murderous tedium of business culture lays claim to the real, not as product, but as its own ideal. Live seizures in the flux, fortuitous archetypes, an art as fugitive as the life it snaps. Us snappers up a photogenic details, yourself a snapper-up of immortal souls, resist commodity, the ersatz, the cold, the schrecklichkeit of the postmodern world, that the sunwriting of our resistance days shine like Cape Clear in a heat haze. If the rhyming pentameter couplets of Mahan's medium might seem an anachronistic form, the poet imbues them with an up-to-the-minute retro-brio, as with that snappy rhyme of archetypes and snaps. The poem develops a notion of resistance that goes back to the war, the occupation, nostalgically enlisting Sartre and Beauvoir, and the countercultural beats for his cause, as well as the photographers Kertesch and Robert Doineau. They are all, he intimates, alternative models of cultural production to that of business culture. The passage foregrounds how deeply invested Lake Mahan is in live seizures in the flux, photogenic details as instances of the photographic art he aspires to as the sun writing of our resistance days. Live seizure of fugitive detail is at the heart of Lake Mahan and his details capturing place, capturing time, the COVID time or the, the time of our climate emergency is unparalleled and the poetry all hinges on such details. Uh, sun writing, of course, is a literal take on the etymology of photography. Uh, 
with the poet's dream of it shining like Cape Clear in a heat haze, turning a Cork, county Cork landmark into a fortuitous archetype of aesthetic clarity as he does so. Resistance is a complex word, of course, and Mahan's poem plays with two radically different senses, one to do with physics, engineering, and construction, the other to do with underground political movements of opposition to a dominant power, as in the French resistance uh, and in anti-colonial resistance movements in Africa and elsewhere. In his essay on the poetry nonsense, which um, um, Jerry referred to, Mahan aligned the poetry nonsense to his vague instinctual resistance to a world engineered for the maximum efficiency, competitive growth, global excellence, and world-class foolishness of all kinds, arguing that the poetry nonsense sets itself up against regulation, system, utility. It is indeterminate, marginal, unimportant, and therein lies its importance. In the late poetry, that vague instinctual resistance acquires both critical intellectual force and aesthetic form. Resistance, however, is also a term associated with climate activism, uh, which Naomi Klein, Mahan's great Naomi Klein, activates at the end of This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, where she cites Brad Werner a complex systems researcher at the University of San Diego. In 2012, Werner, in a, talk, in a talk wonderfully entitled, Is the Planet Fucked?, put his precarious hope on what he called resistance. People or groups of people who adopt a certain set of dynamics that does not fit within uh, the capitalist culture. He had in mind protest groups sabotaged by indigenous people and the intervention of activists. Recalling the impact of previous protest movements on the dominant culture, Werner said, if we're thinking about the future of the earth and the future of our couplings to the environment, we have to include resistance as part of that dynamics. It's a geophysical problem. It's also an aesthetic problem, uh, as we see in the conjunction of poetry and resistance in late Mahan. Timothy Morton, in his book, The Ecological Thought, reminds us all art, not just explicitly ecological art, hardwires the environment into its form. It's not only about something, it is something, or maybe does something. And I just have a little quote from, from Morton here. Art is ecological insofar as it is made of materials and exists in the world. It exists, for instance, as a poem on a page made of paper from trees which you hold in your hand while sitting in a chair in a house that rests on a hill in the suburbs of a polluted city. The shape of the stanza and the length of the lines determine the way you appreciate the blank paper around them. The poem organizes space. Seen like this, all texts, all artworks, indeed, have an irreducible ecological form. Mahan readers will recognize the bearings of this, I think, on many poems, uh, on the late poems. A poem like Stuff, for example, where wood shavings, oil and canvas, sand and stone become artifacts and the stuff the dreams are made of. 
What other poet has been so aware of poems on paper as being made from trees and written on tables in a particular place, as well as of the shape of the poem in space? Morton's comment, I think, connects Mahan's resistant medium to his political poetics of resistance. Looking through the great compendium of poetic forms and life forms, uh, that is poems 1961 to 2020, we see how important foregrounding of form making is for Mahan. This is visible in the tributes to other makers, in innumerable, innumerable poems about painters, even in late Mahan, as in art notes, about filmmakers, as in BW, black and white, in photographers, as in old cork in photographs, or monochrome, the wonderful poem about a photograph of his uh, late wife, about composers, as in Nacht und Träume, or Ode to Björk, and to poets, like the US poets invoked in Specimen Days, and the novelists like Tolstoy and Jean Rhys in other poems, but also even to philosophers in poems like Thing Theory and Natural Selection. Um, all of these, I think, highlight his interest in formers of form and theorists of form uh, and the life of, of form, as well as forms of life. We also, however, in these late poems, see it in the huge spectrum of freewheeling variations on receiving received rhyming stanza forms. Protean, three-line, four-line, six-line, seven-line, ten-line, freely self-morphing rhymed shapes and shapings. These anchor his late ecological work in lyric tradition. Uh, Sean was talking earlier, uh, uh, referring to Klaus Mulder, I think, uh, talking about the way that lyric, modern lyric, uh, is interested in kind of re, uh, re restoring, resurrecting enchantment in a period of disenchantment. And Mahan would be is a perfect um, instance of that. So these forms anchor his work in lyrical tradition. So, and after the adventurous large scale formal experiments of the 90s, Mahan's return to lyric form placed the lyric eye at the center of what Washing Up calls the eye of real existence, uh, which is also the place of real um, resistance. The eye in later Mahan seems more directly personal and autobiographical perhaps than in early career, and the formal contract is often looser. For all their stanzaic shapeliness, the poems tend to be less tight Yes, under the domain of the critical superego. They wear conversational sneakers rather than formal brogues, like Derek. In a quiet spot, he says, Gaia demands your love. The patient earth, your airy sneakers tread, expects humility and care. And the later poems tend to tread airily, embodying both ecological care and stylistic insouciance. Despite their casually personal voice, I don't think they're primarily autobiographical, though they are movingly that. He's not Lowell, nor was meant to be. They're more like witness state statements, jottings in times of ecocide, of neoliberal economics, of development-addicted Ireland, and the COVID pandemic of his poem, Quarantine. 
always an unparalleled poet of place, Mahan is also always a poet of, of time and his time, as in Trump time. The first person is a recording instrument mapping out the relationship between the local subject and the turbulent weather systems he, like the rest of us, is caught up in. And using a jazzier, well-tempered clavier to do so, a version of the dance of keys, the trance of composition, he celebrates in Olympia. The best, it's lovely in John Minahan's photographs that you have seen uh, of, of Dahan Mahan at the typewriter, um, presumably Olympia. So Derek, not in Olympia, but with Olympia, which is a very good image to have. The best poems in his last books, including Olympia, Clearing, Ivy, Wood Pigeons of the Grove, Alone in the Dark, Open Air, Dust and Washing Up. They measure up to the finest in his earliest books and they often echo, rework and build upon them. So in reading them, we're always reading across the oeuvre. We're thinking of a, this kind of coral reef um, where one poem echoes another. Uh, I've often been frustrated that Derek doesn't name the different the individual books in the collections because the individual books mean so much to me and to many of us but it does have the the virtue of of showing an interconnected whole and of course interconnectedness is one of the things that the ecological mahan is so alive to um, so part of the pleasure of reading late mahan is this resilient sense of continuity and discontinuity with his earlier work, as well as the explicit continuity with the huge cast of earlier writers, artists, composers he writes about, like the so many exiles, so many reprobates he invokes in Against the Clock, which include Dante and Coleridge, Hugo, Whitman, Yeats, and persecuted proud Akmatova, who sang to the Black Knights, where one rhyme embraces the reprobates, Yeats, and Black Knights beautifully. Addressing the potentially catastrophic present, Mahanis always affirms the need to return to ancient sources of art and cultural practice, as when in Trump time he stands where a spring rises in the little wood of birch and sycamore beside the house, and imagine, tra imagines traveling through lost ages to a distant time when it was sacred to a pre-Christian God, and returns to the present. Such things survive, beloved of poet and artist, he says, putting the idea of survival at the heart of his vision and setting the lasting features of our lost domain against Trump time. Mahan is a great poet of our current crisis because he's not only a nature poet, the naturalist Bill McKibben def definitively declared the end of nature in 1989, but simultaneously always a poet who addresses nature and culture city and country, zoology and economics. We never inhabit a romantic pastoral vocabulary exclusively in a modern poem. We're always in a mixed, uh, a mixed vocabulary, um, which is alive and, and alert to the many languages we speak and, and appropriate the world through. Describing a, a thunder shower, for example, we get a suite of water, wind and bin, plinky poulonk or strongly groaning brahms. Then the mythological voice of Baal exploding and trying to reimpose his failed hegemony. Amid the bedlamite music of this vast polyphony, 
Mahan also hears the rackety global franchise rush, oil wars and water wars, the diatonic crescendo of a cascading world economy. Here, Mahan's vision of the potentially romantic thunderstorm casting concertina-like six-line stanzas hits us with the strident electronic shock of the global present. The epiphanically charged a clearing likewise introduces us to the mysterious action of the wood wide web, which Sam talked about, while contemplating the transformation of the place into a picnic table, a building site, framing his Yeatsian epiphany within our wasteful consumer culture and setting up a kind of resistant tension between the two. There's a continuum between these poems of explicit ecological resistance and those about the resistance of the medium. Working conditions humorously advocates a beloved presence, the right kind of light, preferably from an eastward facing window, a bit of river if you can organize it, bird life, a windbreak and some sea below. In, in other words, exactly his daily working conditions in the grove in Kinsale. Beyond this sense of external situation, he recommends a certain cast of mind, also his own, a rhyme in your head or a persistent theme that won't leave you alone, a tendency to dream and frequent practice in the art of verse. Beyond these, or including them, is the need to keep in time with the deep rhythms, with the inconstant beat of the life cycle. This is not a, a poem about the environment, though there are many of those, but it is in every word and beat environmental. All late man depends on his frequent practice in the art of verse, of course, but also the force of the rhyme in your head and the beat of the life cycle. Timothy Morton doesn't discuss rhyme, but in discussing the Darwinian sense of life forms, he argues that a life form flows around within its unstable liquid environment in a highly metamorphic way. It says, if you trace the history of evolution backwards, you will see no rhyme or reason to it. Well, you will, you will a great deal of incredible rhyme and intricate reason, but no progress, no teleology and no climax. Evolution shares pointlessness with art, which at bottom is vague and purposeless. That would be the last point. In Mahan, we constantly witness the intuitive analogy between art forms and life forms in his verse and universe. In the poetry nonsense, Mahan talks about writing in the post-real world and returning to rhyme and reason, certainly rhyme, a light switch quick and predictable to the touch. I think this is part of the, his fluid metamorphic sense of both art and the world. His rhyme is a hypersensitive way of tracking our place in the terrifyingly, but also exhilaratingly complex mesh of things. On this view, the medium is not defined by its environmental resistance so much as spongy receptivity to the interconnectedness of the universe. This itself, however, is a mark of its resistance to the ide ideology of instrumentalism, uh, the market, the logic of global capital, the murderous tedium of business culture. It's this combination of affirmation and critique that we find in these poems that I think defines Mahan's late poetic style. 
if not the simple, simultaneous embodiment of resistance and celebration, then an alternating embrace of celebration of both earth, music and art. Late Mahan is a protean song of the earth and a critique of the current world order at the same time. Sort of caught between um, after Swift and being af writing after Coleridge, after Keats. The celebratory affirmative dimension is integral to Mahan's sense of form and his agile commitment to the medium of rhyme and stanzaic form, I think is crucial to our sense of his cosmopolitan romantic urbanity, an alternative to other forms of globalism. The celebratory affirmative dimension, I think it is, becomes more and more uh, upfront and foregrounded in, in Lake Mahan. Um, we find him caught in an unlikely space between Swift and Coleridge, the ferociously satirical resistance writer of Trump time and the romantic lyricist of Autumn Skies, both embodying a version of the poet as a relic of pre-digital times, fond of anachronistic rhymes. Matthew Campbell has written memorably about the Irish longing for rhyme and Mahan's continually reinvent, reinventive commitment to anachronistic rhymes is a crucial ingredient in the fierce and genial late style of washing up. In fact, of course, Mahan writes regularly of digital times and even when writing against the clock, always writes within earshot of the latest news. Uh, I don't take any very few contemporary poets have anything like his kind of permeability and kind of eye for, ear for, the kind of flow of, of current news talk, cliche, um, uh, journalistic um, uh, language. Uh, and it's actually crucial to the kind of the, the forming process that goes into the composition of, of the poems. This enhances the rhyme of pre-digital times and an anachronistic rhymes creating an alliance as well as a dissonance between them. Rhyme is a recurring theme as well as resource in Lake Mahan. Uh, I don't want to trespass on Ed Longley's territory here, but thinking about the medium is integral to Mahan's poetics of resistance to the new world order, embodied in the post-modern and post-human oil wars and water wars, strip mining and data mining. We see one take on this aesthetic in New Space, one of many poems devoted to his shared living space in the Grove and Casale. By the way, has any poet ever had a better or more appropriate poetic address than the Grove, Compass Hill, Kinsale, County Cork? <laughs> in my view, no. This particular poem celebrates a swept and scrubbed studio reminiscent of courtyards in Delft. It invites us to look at how green light and shadow fall on the interior jug and bowl, still life and nature mort. The place itself is a still life restored to living matter, a new space whose true life is renewed once more. With its fluid pentameter pulse and relaxed gait, the lines simultaneously suggest an artwork and a place of work. We then led from the converted stable where an old record plays to pram and pine and summer breeze to an embrace of the venerable ideal of spirit lodged within the real. Everything simple, strong and clean. Art that was modest, not a chore and rhyming verses not too long that say exactly what they mean. 
Mahan's earlier Ovid and Thomas had said, the simple life would be right for me if I were a simple man. But the later Mahan seems to be aspiring here to the kind of Tolstoyan ideal his Wiley and Ovid rejected. Seems to, but in describing Tolstoy as someone who disapproved of opera, plays and novels, Mahan also sets a limit on this ideal, especially when set against the cosmopolitan embrace of opera, plays and novels in so many of these later poems. Nevertheless, in going on to say, the weight of a bone-handled knife signifies more in human life than our aesthetics can, form follows function. Mahan is clearly drawn to the kind of new age ethos and aesthetic celebrated in the poem. But in what sense does form follow function in poetry? And what about the inventor of the phrase, the architect Louis Sullivan, who developed the steel skyscraper in late 19th century Chicago and wrote, whether it be the sweeping eagle in his flight or the open apple blossom, the toiling work horse, the blithe swan, the branching oak, the winding stream, the drifting clouds, form ever follows function. It is the pervading law of all things, organic and inorganic, of all things physical and metaphysical, of all things human and all things superhuman, that the life is recognizable in its expression, that form ever follows function. Sullivan's phrase was taken up by modernist architects in the 1930s with ideals rather different from those in the poem. And I think, um, as I think Sam Solnick was arguing, Mahan is, can ironize his own wish for simplicity. He can sort of move between a, a wished for return to naivete and, 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 and a, a, an unescapable acknowledgement of the complexity of his own um, formulations. Uh, there are many, poems uh, in these later books about that work of poetry in our time, including Olympia, Working Conditions, and the Gravesian Ninth Wave, which I just want to briefly quote as I've moved towards winding up. We give her credit at the very least, he says in the Ninth Wave, um, haunted by death, lost love, a nightmare past, indictments of ourselves, what should we do with these inheritances but write them through and sing the praises of our only nurse and gratitudes of prose and verse? Write them through calls up the ghost of Freud's great paper on repeating, remembering, and working through, and remembers the graves was, I suppose, was, was uh, uh, given therapy by W.H. Rivers, a disciple of Freud's. But I think it's interesting that he can turn the natural force of the ninth wave into both a muse and a nurse, a nurturing feminine presence that inspires gratitudes of prose and verse, even while dealing with death, lost love, and nightmare past. The poem complicates and enriches the sense of inheritances. Here it refers to traumatic pain, lost love, and self-indictment, but also to a religious and poetic tradition of gratitude that he aligns with Graves' sense of the legacy of the white goddess figure and is consummated in the lovely inheritance of, of rhyme. I'm going, I'm going to jump uh, and, and move to a last phase. I hope that's all right in terms of time and that you can stand me for a little bit more. Um, I want to just move to two poems, uh, Olympia on the Internet and Horizons, both of which I think um, suggest uh, this, the notion of the medium, Dif different motion, notions of the medium. Olympia on the Internet, with its perfect title, operates with a characteristically complex time sense, 
negotiate a dream of returning to the cultural past and its forms and an acknowledgement of the present. It opposes two historically contrasted configurations of power, the Greek mythological HQ of the gods, after which his typewriter is named, and the computer. In it, he concedes that the internet might even help reactivate the radical politics we left behind with the typewriter before ending with a restatement of his poetics of resistance. Poetry, that strange persistent art made up ideally of soul, song and formal necessity survives and even thrives in the digital age, thrives perhaps because of digitization. It's a form of resistance or should be an insistence on private truth and fantasy in the face of a dominant paradigm that increasingly invading public space drives us indoors to paper and pen. That's from the essay, Olympia and the Internet. I'm not sure the opposition between public and private is true generally of Mahon, but the form of resistance his poetry takes continually breaks down the barrier between them, redrawing relationship between global and local, subjective and cosmic, political and personal, while still insisting on the space of the poem as an object circulating among others. Against this, I want to set Horizons, um, an essay dedicated to uh, about the artworks by his artworks by his partner Sarah Ironmonger, some of which we've seen and and Sarah we've already heard from. Title, essay, and poem suggest a different paradigm of the artwork, or what he calls artscapes and thoughtscapes. On the one hand, boundedness, boundary, margin, limit, edge, says Roger, perimeter, skyline, rim. This is the essay. On the other, the sense of beyond the horizon lie other horizons, each as ephemeral as the last. In answer to the question, what lies behind perceived reality, Mahan responds with another question, shifting frames, ontological alternatives, deep water mysteries, drowned forests, shipwrecks, Star Wars, vanished continents, question mark. He could wish, he said, Sarah's paintings had a few more gulls in them, like his poems, but affirms how they chart a voyage from the interior to the open sea, and while remaining themselves, document new dimensions and expanding fields, creative possibility, wherever the edge may be. And in the poem, he talks about a straight line, wherever the edge may be, confines and also opens up the sea to ancient shipwreck, drowned forest, lost continents, and nuclear waste. And it seems to me, I'm interested by that, that straight line is also thinking, I think about the line of the poem uh, and the edge of the poem and the way that it, a straight line both confines and also opens up. And I think that's one of the paradoxes that has worked um, in the way rhyme operates um, to, to, to match, uh, pitch itself against the, the, the complexities of the world and um, that we find in new dimensions, uh, as in the wonderful spuds in space, a vision of in, ec, inter, ecological interconnectedness and expanding horizons, starting at home, moving outwards, and culminating in a vision of interstellar potatoes. <laughs> so I'm just going to have a one more paragraph, if you allow me that. I'm sorry if, if I'm uh, trespassing on time. I've spoken of Mahan as a poet of survival, for whom survival and form are intimately aligned. This is evident as early as lives, with its first time out I was a talk of gold, and its series of transmigratory rebirths as ore from Ithaca, Navajo rug, 
tongue of African bark and anthropologist warning us to revise our insolent ontology or teach himself to pray. Another great spokesperson of survival in, is Mahan Streetwise Manhattan feminist Sappho in Judith's room, who having had her lyric fragments exhumed from Egyptian sands and then constituted in Mahan's elegantly rhymed hexameter couplets asks, didn't I say we'd live again in another form? Here again, we see Mahan the resurrectionist operating with a generously elastic notion of form, but insisting on continuing life after death, which we find throughout the late poems. Living again in another form speaks of Mahan the translator, the adapter, the poet of adaptation, as well as Mahan the revisionist. Timothy Morton says, organisms are palimpsests of additions, deletions, and rewritings. Well, that's certainly true of, of uh, Derek Mahan's poems. I haven't scanned poems uh, for textual variants, but I did note one that I want to end by commenting on. It's from After the Titanic, an early survival poem, which survives with all its power intact, even after its titanically misplaced appropriation by an insensitive biographer. Last time out, uh, the poem ended, include me in your lamentations. It now closes, include me in your commemorations. Dear musical, generous and contrarian maestro, here today we include you in our lamentations and commemorations. And also in gratitudes in prose and verse for one of the most intellectually challenging, imaginatively hospitable, mind-expanding and heartbreaking poets of our time and of resistance to our time. Thank you. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.